What if you could peek into a crystal ball and see the future of healthcare? Would you do it? Well, you can't exactly offer you a crystal ball, but our guest is the next best thing when it comes to health and healthcare design. Welcome to the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute, and today's guest is Professor Moyes Jiwu. Jiwu is a practicing physician in Melbourne, Australia, and the editor-in-chief of the Journal of Health Design. And just for good measure, because he didn't have much going on, he also happens to be the Associate Dean and Professor of Health Innovation at the Melbourne Clinical School, University of Notre Dame. On the coaching front, the last chance to pursue the MBHWC-approved coaching certification through the Cattle's Coaching Institute before the rates go up and still be on track to sit for the national board exam in early 2022 is now just weeks away. Reach out to us anytime. We can set up a time to talk through your questions. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com or you can access all the details at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com anytime you'd like. Now let's peer into that health design crystal ball with Professor Moyes Jiwu on the latest episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness, and Performance Coaching Podcast. Dr. Giwa, it is fun to have you join us. Thank you for making time. Thank you so much, Brad. And please call me Moyes. You got it. And that's easier for me to say too. So I, I appreciate that. So you're the editor of the Journal of Health Design. And I was looking through it last few episodes or last few issues. And you take an interesting look at obesity. So I, I'd love to jump out of the gate talking through some of that. You, you have one headline that jumps on the sitting is the new smoking with snacking is the new smoking. Love it. What does that mean to us, though, as individuals, as coaches, as anyone trying to make the most of their life? Okay, so I think the way to test this is to look at the ads that we had for smoking in the 1950s and 60s, and then look at the ads for chocolates and biscuits as we are now offering them to the public in 2000 and whatever. Yeah. And there's a real resonance. So what's happening essentially is that we're using food for pleasure. And that is a real problem because a lot of the time we're escaping from difficult circumstances in our lives and mm. jobs uh, by looking for pleasure. And yeah. food is one of those things. It's very dangerous because it's high density, calorific meals that we're having in between our, our lunch uh, you know, breakfast, right. lunch, and right, right. Um, uh, that that completely makes sense. So, in terms of obesity, you're a physician. You're working with physicians. You're speaking with physicians on your podcast. By the way, throw out the name of your podcast. You, you and I just had a chance to visit on that last time, just so people can follow you with that if they'd like. While we're at it, it's called a, it's called a health design podcast. Perfect, and we'll have a link to that in the description for folks. But what is the role of physicians? in managing obesity. This is such a big issue. It's a struggle for so many people. They're not easy answers. Are we to solve this 30 years ago? For physicians, though, our son just started med school, so I'm extra curious on this. What is the role for physicians? And maybe speak at it on this topic from two different angles. One, the general practitioner, the family practice doc that has that long-term trusted relationship, and then maybe the orthopedist or the neurologist or the specialist that maybe they only see once in their life or once every five or six years, in, is there a difference in the way those different physicians will address this? I think that's a, a, a very good question. And firstly, the orthopedist, the specialists are seeing it as often as we family docs are mm -hmm. seeing it. So uh, rates of obesity, overweight and obesity are 60 to 80%. So if, unless you're only managing patients who are 
normal weight, you're going to see it every day, day yeah. in, day out. Yeah. It's going to impact on your results oh, because huge. Uh, obesity and surgery are not a good mix. Right, right. So I think that the difficulty from the family physician's point of view is that there's very little time in the consult to deal with this. Now, yeah, sure, you might have a relationship with a family or an individual that spans many years, possibly many generations, yeah. but you only have a very short time to address the issue. And often the issue is appearing at a time when people are least likely to attend doctors. So, you know, late Adult, uh, late adulthood, uh, early middle age, uh, older people, that's when it's beginning to show its effect. And the time when you can most do something about it, when you're in your late 20s, mm -hmm. early 30s, 40s, you're not going to see the doctor. Yeah. And you're going to see the doctor for minor things. So for the doctor to then lecture you about your weight becomes really problematic. That is a great point. I had not thought of that. So that, that key window of opportunity for the physician, for the patient, we're missing it because there's no reason to go. There are plenty of reasons. But generally speaking, people skip those 15-year period from 26 to 41 or so, and then they wake up and say, oh my gosh, I better get in touch with my family doc. That's exactly right. And in fact, you don't think I better get in touch with my family doc, because as far as you're concerned, you don't have a problem. Yes. Because when you look around you, Everybody else is, you know, wearing yeah. XL and XXL clothes. Completely. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so you don't see it as you, you're blind to the fact that you have a problem. Right. right. And, and those problems are, they're just waiting behind the curtain to attack us in those 50s, 60s, 70s in terms of blood pressure, diabetes, Alzheimer's, all these other things that are related to something that's hiding in our 20s, 30s and 40s. Correct. Yeah. And, you know, when you go to work, the classically, what you do mid-morning, you go for a coffee with a friend, right? And what do you do then? You have a biscuit or you mm. have a muffin or something. And you've taken on 500 calories yeah. before you even start. Yeah. You don't see that as a problem because you see that as part of the culture, part of mm -hmm. the routine mm -hmm. of going to work. Yeah, habitual. So uh, for the physicians listening, what what is your advice? What, what can they do differently in those, and I think when we were chatting yesterday, you said about 20 minutes per patient here in the U.S., it's probably closer to seven to nine minutes. Uh, in that limited time, without simply lecturing or handing them a to-do list, what can a physician do? I think we need to be very careful how we handle this, because if we decide we've got a role in this, we need to have the resource, we need to have the time, and we need to have the skills to deliver the message. Otherwise, all we do is make a bad situation worse mm. by focusing the patient on a problem that they don't recognize when they're dealing with a whole bunch of other things, whether that's their blood pressure or their diabetes or whatever it happens to be, which, by the way, takes at least that much time to deal with in the consult. Right. So I think we need a rethink in the way we approach the problem of weight management for our community. Any, and I kind of set up this interview as this, you're the crystal ball, man. You, you, you got the, the eye on what we're going to be doing the next 10 to 20 years. Do you, what, what changes do you see coming that may positively impact that both for the physicians and for the patients? I think we need to think about where people are and often they spend, as we said yesterday in our conversation, we, they spend most of their time at work. I think here is a role for people who are not 
necessarily in medicine, but who are working with people who see the impact of these problems on their lives, who see what a break time looks like in the work environment, and to work with people at that point. So my team are working on an innovation, I'm sure many others are, where we're producing avatars that show you what happens when you put on weight, when you lose weight. And we're specifically focusing on what you look like when you stop snacking. What you might look like in the next six, eight, 12 months if you stop snacking. Because we all know that exercise has a very limited role in weight management. Your results are largely based on what you put in your mouth. And so putting aside the fact that you're not going to have abs if you stop snacking, (laughs) you're certainly going to lose weight. And if you lose weight, it's the, the right step in the direction of getting the body that you want. And let's face it, that's what we're all after. The drivers for many people are not to do with what's going to happen in 20 years time when I get diabetes. They're to do with what am I going to look at cousin Joe's wedding mm. in another six to 12 months. Yeah. Yeah. And we can provide that crystal ball, as you say. So, so I love this. I can literally go in and plug in me and it's got a picture of my face and my body the way it is now. And if I stop sm- snacking or I reduce that by 50%, then it's going to show me what I'm going to look like six, 12 months from now. Is that what you're saying? Exactly exactly right. So we fun. Te- we have the technology to do that. It's not particularly complicated. The algorithms are all in the back of the computer and it basically spits out an image of what you're going to look like in six to eight months time, should you stop consuming 500 calories more than you are, more than you need this week or next week or whatever happens to be. And if you keep that up, you can see how your body will change dramatically. But the other nice thing about it is that if you don't do that, it shows you that it's not going to be a disaster in the next week or two if you fall off the wagon and, you know, you happen to go to Hungry Jack's or KFC, (laughs) whatever it happens to be. It's not the end of the world. This is not the fun police. This is to help people to achieve the results they want. And truly visualize it. In a real way. In a real way. So, so I'm loving this because about 10 years ago when some of the, um, the printable that you could plug in that you wanted a, a wrench and the printer would literally print out a wrench for you. Now, it wouldn't be the same as what you get built in a uh, machine factory, but you need to partner with one of those folks. And then do you know what bobbleheads are? Is that a thing in Australia? You guys big on bobbleheads? So in the U.S., a lot of the athletic teams will put out these bobbleheads and it'll be like the ba- your favorite baseball player and have kind of a, a little tiny body and then this big head and it just it just bobbles. And so people keep these on their desk and just when they're laughing and joking, they'll be like, oh, here's my, you know, LeBron James. And they'll just have his little bobblehead up there. And, it, and it's a big deal here. You need to partner with those folks because how cool would it be for me to have two bobbleheads? One, if I stop snacking. Two, if I increase my snacking and that sits on my desk and I look at the two and I go, which Brad do you want to be today, buddy? So <laughs> I, j- just saying, something out there for, for you to add on to that. Um, one of the other things in the journal that it talks about is the role of alcohol consumption in obesity for middle-aged women, uh, men. And I'm, I'm assuming women 
very similarly. Can you talk through that a little bit with us? And and at what levels? Is it any? Is it you know medium levels? Is it more than the the recommended daily allowance? Those kinds of things. Just walk us through that concept. Get get this spinning around in people's heads a little bit. Okay. So my experience as a family doctor, and I've been a family doctor for thirty more than thirty years now, is that alcohol generally is a problem at any level that you consume alcohol, and it's not. And that's not being. You know, that's, there's no particular uh, other reason for it other than thinking about health because along with alcohol come a whole bunch of other habits. So mm. you, go, you go to the pub, you, you're sitting in front of the, the television, you're watching a game and you've got your beer, you're going to want something else to go with that. So you're going to consume chips or you're going to consume peanuts or whatever it happens to be, dense calorie full of, you know, bad food. And so while you might think I've only had one beer, you've also consumed a whole bunch of other things. Mm. Um, And of course, the more you drink, the more calories you're consuming as well. So it's not just the food, it's the the calories in the actual alcohol. And of course, when you're drinking alcohol, your inhibitions are down, your bubble head is the the one you're focused on, (laughs) the other bubble head, you're watching the game. And so there it goes. So... The alcohol matters, but it's more what accompanies the alcohol. It's it's more what the alcohol leads to, the the thoughtless activities that are going on accompanying the alcohol. Yeah, it's the pizza, it's the chips, it's yeah. all those things that, you know, we automatically assume are part of the fun of having a beer. Right, right. Okay, makes sense. Uh, so you and I met through your wife, uh, who taught an exceptional course on storytelling. I said, any of you who are Seth Godin fans out there, I found Bernadette, his wife, amazing wife, through Seth Godin. I took the class back in 2019. But the journal featured this topic a couple of years back. It talked about a patient's story it has a huge impact on the proper diagnosis for physicians. Do, do you see artificial intelligence being able to tap into that storytelling? I, I'm wondering if that's one of the aspects where AI will will never quite replace the physician's relationship, ability to tap into that story, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I think that's exactly right. Uh, so you're talking to somebody who loves to see patients face-to-face. I think when we are distressed, when we have a problem, when we want comfort, we don't want to talk to a machine. Now, when you mm. talk to people who are involved in technology, they say, well, you know, the machine's going to have eyes. It's going to be, you'll be able to look at it and it, it'll, it'll feel like you're looking at a human being. It's going to be, you're going to be able to put your fingers in a particular place and feel as if that, that machine was holding your hand, etc. I don't buy that, frankly. I think we need other people when we are in trouble uh, it's different if you're going in to get a repeat prescription for something sure. and the machine's able to work out when you, when you took your medicines, um, how many are left all, and all those other things and your biomarkers all could be fed into the machine. But when it comes to telling stories, I believe there's no alternative to another human being. Okay, so let's run down this rabbit trail. Physicians have limited time, and so they're most likely removing, in many cases, the story aspect of that visit and focusing on the biometric data. Yeah. What words of wisdom do you have either A, for physicians or for patients that are looking for a physician, maybe their 
40 years old, they're starting to wake up to the idea of, of rebuilding this relationship, of looking for a physician who gets that. How, how do you, how do you, besides watching your watch and going, oh, that was seven minutes, how, how does a patient find that physician who gets the story side? Okay. So it doesn't take 20 minutes to get someone in the mood to tell a story or to get a story out of someone. And the way you know you're in the right room is how you've been greeted and how you've been treated in the first two minutes of that meeting, right? If your doctor is at his computer or her computer wholly for the first two minutes of your consult, I would stand up and leave. (laughs) Because that person is not focused on you and your needs. It doesn't take much to turn around, face your knees in the direction of somebody, look them in the eye, and shut up and listen for two minutes. That's all it takes, two minutes. And in that two minutes, in that pregnant pause, you are going to blurt out your deepest, darkest (laughs) secrets. Trust me. Remember Columbo? That was his superpower. (laughs) So you and I remember Columbo, but most of our listeners are going, Colum what? What what is this thing? What is this Columbo thing he's talking about? That's a a shame. (laughs) Greatest detective America ever had. Look him up on YouTube. I love it. Um, All right. So how about for the physician who's saying, I get it. Like, I believe that. I just, I'm so rushed. I'm just so, do you have any encouragement for that person? So so you can put your arm around him and say, it's going to be okay. Here's why. Yeah. I would say just try it. We always, we're telling ourselves a story in our heads. Oh, you know, the administrators are not going to be happy unless I plug in all this data, et cetera, et cetera. If you're on such a rat wheel, such a hamster wheel, you need to get off it for starters. And besides which, being rebellious is not a bad thing. Rebel (laughs) just for two minutes. For two minutes, say, this is me time, me and my patient time. I'm going to give this my best shot. Because at the end of the day, we doctors go into this so that we can serve people. That's where the joy comes in our work. And if you're not going to get that out of your work, what else are you getting? Do you want to just be a data monkey, which is essentially what many people have been turned into? Yeah. Yeah. I come out of the physical therapy world. I've been a PT for almost, I guess, 30 years now. That's scary to say. Um, And I remember when we switched over to HMOs in the mid nineties, probably, Uh, there was a big push for time. And one of the things I tried to encourage people to do, I was not always good at it, but things I tried to do was realizing that if you do exactly what you described, if you invest that first two minutes truly listening, it generally decreases the time you need in the other aspects of the evaluation because they're going to give you the key information and then you can guide your stuff. So it's not as if you're you're having to, you, you talk about rebelling. You're not having to say, I'm just not going to listen to the administrator. You're saying, wait, if I invest this two minutes, my other 18 will be better spent. Correct. And you will more likely meet the needs of that administrator by investing the time that is actually part of the equity of the relationship between doctor and patient. As soon as they feel that you're engaged with them, as in the patient feels that you're engaged with them, they're going to, they're going to want to work with you. Yeah. And that's what we all want. We want our patients to work with us, not say, you know what, I'll just listen politely to his ear because that's what I'm looking at right now. 
for about whatever, however long this lasts. And then I'm going to walk out of here. I'm going to find a second opinion. Yeah. 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 Good. All right. Your podcast focused on better health by design. We talked about the name of it before is health design podcast. Uh, what are some of the most important things you've learned from guests over the years? What, what, what are the things that jumped out at you and you went, Oh, that's, that's really good. I think that the thing that I got most out of the podcast are the stories. Uh, and I would say that, uh, otherwise, you know, <laughs> Bernadette's not going to be happy with you. She's not going to be happy. I'm going to go home tonight. Um, it's the stories. It's the fact that people when given a chance will tell you a story that is so much more powerful than a lecture or a PowerPoint presentation or anything else. So let me tell you a story. This is a story from one of my guests and the story goes like this. So it was in the 1950s in Alabama, uh, in the U.S., and this uh, five-year-old boy lacerated his forehead, and his mom took him to the hospital uh, to have the laceration sutured. Now, at that time, there was segregation, as you know, in the U.S., and the doctor, a white doctor, put the sutures into this child's forehead, and the mom realized that she didn't have money to pay for that procedure. So she said to the doctor, which often happened in those communities, why don't I pay you forward? I'll pay you as time goes by. I'll pay you a little bit each week mm -hmm. and we'll cover this. And the doctor took the sutures out. Oh, no. Now that story was told to me on the first anniversary of George Floyd's death. Wow. Extraordinarily powerful story. And he and the person who told me the story said, this story is still a part of some Americans' lives. And so I realized then that, you know, Bernadette was right. It is about stories. How much more powerful is that than a political statement mm -hmm. about the, the kind of indignities that some people have to suffer, not just in the U.S., by the way, but across the world. Sure. No, I, I, I think that resonates so well. I think a lot of people listening to you share, reshare that story. We're, we're just kind of sitting on the edge of the seats going, no, 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 they're not really. Are you, what? And, and so you're right. That, that simple, short 45 second story carries more weight that will stick with people it'll stay with them it will remind them when they're in a similar situation where they could be that doctor or that mom yeah i i love that um there are so many layers to that you know yeah. layers about the commercialization of medicine yes layers about in inequity layers about the indignity we heap on one another and the layers of the humanity of the person who accepted that they, she had to. She had to accept that situation and deal with it. And she did. She took the child to a veterinarian. That's what happened yeah. because that's what needed to happen in order. And, and what, led, what led to the outcome of that was the boy, the 11-year-old, then 11-year-old boy, my guest on the podcast, Ron Wyatt, went on to become an extraordinarily gifted physician wow. because he wanted to change that. Right. I'm going to be different. I love that. Love that. Um, tell us more. Like, you, you got me drawn in here. Is there another one that jumps off the page where you're like, oh, yeah, and then there was this one. Keep it coming, my friend. Well, th there were some, some awful stories, I have to say. And uh, the other one that really struck home for me was the story of this woman who brought her child to the hospital with encephalitis. So the child had clearly got an inflammation 
in and around the brain and there was a need to do a lumbar puncture. And she said that the attending physician had said to her, let me know if you need me to yell at anybody. And she said, why would I need to do that? She said, well, you know, things happen at this hospital which really shouldn't be happening. And what happened, in fact, the night the child was admitted was that she was subjected to three or four attempts at a lumbar puncture by medical students. The child was extraordinarily distressed and mom had to call, mom was a physician, had to call time and say, please, please stop, get somebody who is better qualified, better experienced to see to my child. Uh, that was another extraordinarily powerful story that reminds me that as a physician, not to take things for granted, that sometimes seeing things from the eyes of the person who you're trying to help can sometimes shock you yeah. uh, as to what you've allowed yourself to do. I, I heard that interview that you did with her. I, I, that was a very, very well done. Um, let, let's talk the practical implications for those listening who are not physicians, which would obviously be the majority of our listeners. What in today's healthcare, in, in the world that we're dealing with, and obviously it's a little bit different, Australia, US, Europe, we, we've got listeners in all three, what would be your advice for the patient to get through this crazy map called healthcare? I think it's important to find a doctor that you're comfortable with. And, and for all the stories that we hear, there are some extraordinarily talented, caring, compassionate human beings out there who are in the profession. So it's not as if you are fighting an uphill battle. You will find somebody. And then forge a partnership and it's really important to take, to have agency, take control of what you can control. Think about what you can do today to help yourself. Mm. Um, and that's a key message, I think. We found that obviously through COVID, more and more folks are not able to go and see a doctor. So more and more people are beginning to try and understand a bit more about what's going on with them. We talked about obesity. You know, there's a uh, and it's it's not a term that I think we should be using. It's a it's a weight management issue. You know, it's uh, am I managing my weight? Am I looking after myself? Am I exercising? We were talking yesterday. Am I sleeping enough? Uh, you know, is that beer every night necessary? Is that something I can do something about? Because at the end of the day, we know that medicine is a commercialized entity. We know that people are making money out of it, and therefore. There is an, a perverse incentive for us to keep going to see doctors. Right. I think we are, and it's not that doctors are bad. I think it's simply that we have the wherewithal to help ourselves and we should take that, take that power back and, and use it. Great advice. And then there's the evidence-based aspect that you and I have spoken about offline and, and in our previous conversation there's, as people do try to take more control, as they try to improve their health, as they try to look at their alternatives that are out there when they're not there with their doctor and don't have that guidance, there's just so much junk out there. There's just so much baloney or headlines or fads. Any advice on a practical side that would help people tap into that? I mean, our whole focus in this podcast is to focus on the evidence. That's why we have people like you on here. But any advice for folks that are they're online or what resource to look for or how to tap into the stuff that's real versus just the clickbait and all the, the junk that's promising big things, but there's nothing behind it. 
Yeah, I think that's a very, very good question. It's difficult to give an exact answer because it's caveat emptor, isn't it? Buyer beware. Yeah. And that's, a, that's good advice. So I think the first thing to, to ask yourself is who benefits from this that I am offering? Um, and, and the other thing is who's paying for this service that allegedly is free and what, who's getting something out of this other than myself? If you ask yourself that fundamental question every time you are offered something, you will begin to understand what's bogus and what's actually out there that is aimed specifically at you and wants to serve you. And then in terms of the credibility of those giving the message, uh, you and I are doing a podcast. Who are we? Like, I hope people realize we have that background, but anybody can do a podcast. Anybody can have a YouTube channel. And there are so many things, anybody can do a blog. And there's so many things being passed around as, oh, look what I found. This is, this is nothing. Like this, this person doesn't even know, they have no background in this. How does that person cut through the crap that's out there and get to the actual literature-based research, evidence-supported, et cetera, et cetera? Are, are there a couple of things that we can help people just tighten that up a little bit more? I think we need to be very aware of how social media is constructed and the algorithms behind social media. So if you've been looking at what we now know to be false news, you're going to get more and more off it and it's going to be clickbait. So if you're looking at your own device and you know that you've been looking at, you know, hydroxychloroquine as the cure for yeah. COVID, let's yeah, say, yeah. you're going to get more of that kind of thing on your device mm. and more that kind of junk being sent to you. And it's going to be very persuasive because it's not just you and I that know about the power of stories. Lots of other nefarious organizations right. know about the power of stories right. and they will use them mercilessly in order to get what they want. So be very careful about social media. Get somebody who clearly has the qualifications to do to guide you in the way that you would like to be guided and that that organization is properly administered, that there is a structure behind it, there's, there's ethics, there's a responsibility, there's a code that governs the people who look after you from that organization. And medicine's a good one uh, most of the time. So, Which was that one? Me Sorry? Which was Med that medicine one? Medicine is a good one. Medicine is a good example in the sense that mm -hmm. you've got ethics behind right. it. Um, but again, you've got to still be on your guard. And when you're offered, let's say, bariatric surgery, for example, look at the evidence for the benefit. Right. You know, bariatric surgery is one I worry about because we, we know that cutting out large bits of your bowel will make you thinner. But what we don't know is the long-term effects of that. Unless, of course, you're critically ill mm -hmm. and that unless you lose a lot of weight really quickly, your life is in danger. If you're borderline weight and someone's offering you bariatric surgery, I would be thinking twice, even if that person happens to be a doctor. Yeah, yeah, good. All right, surprises. Let's talk about some of the things that you've been most surprised about in terms of your guests, the insight they brought to you that you've, even with your background, 30 years plus as a GP, have said, what? I, I didn't know that. And then you looked into it and sure enough. Yeah, I think, as I said to you, it's the stories. It's the, it's the power that it's the surprising things that people do when they've got their back against the wall. 
And you know, what I discovered was that people were people who were critically ill, people who were given a terminal diagnosis, went on to do really well when they they decided that they were going to take agency, they were going to find a solution, they were going to they were going to research their situation. That was, and that was a very pleasant surprise because by and large that seemed to work for those guests. Then there were people who were so um, at ease with themselves and so able to accept the status quo, so able to live with what was going on. And there was an extraordinary peace that mm. they brought to the conversation and a feeling that even when bad things happen, sometimes the, the results are not as awful as we imagined that they would be. And, and often patients have said, have said to me, the best thing that ever happened to me was that I got cancer because it changed my way of looking at the world. It made me a more generous person. It made me a more, um, the person that I, I would like to have been all my life. And that was, it came, it comes as a real surprise when you hear stories like that. Yeah. So I'm hearing two different extremes. I'm hearing the person who digs in and says, all right, I'm, I'm all in, I'm going to do my research. I'm going to talk to people. I'm going to make some changes. And then on the other side, the acceptance piece, is that ever, is there a way, ever a way to combine those two? I think so. Because even when you are cured in inverted commas of an awful illness, you are not the same person. And there are, you know, the, the best example I can give you is BJ Miller, who is this physician who lost uh, one arm and both of his legs through a, a horrible accident when he was 19 years old. He was horsing around on top of an electric train, stood up and, and grabbed the cables <sighs> above him and lost his limbs. Oh he gosh. is an extraordinary man who's gone on to be an extraordinary physician, palliative care physician, uh, deals with death and dying every day. And, and with all of his um, restrictions on his physical abilities, has gone on to be on the world stage, has been a guest on Oprah, um, and every day helps people come to terms with the fact that it isn't going to end well. And he does it with such grace. And yet he pursued big things in the process. And yet he pursued big things. It didn't stop him yeah. doing amazing things. Yeah. Wow. All right. So let's pull that crystal ball out one more time. Are you optimistic about the future of healthcare? What are your, what are your thoughts about where we're heading with this? I'm very optimistic about the future of healthcare, both from the point of view that technology is going to help us to achieve great things. I talked about uh, the future me app, the one that I, uh, you know, the, the avatar one, and that's a very small example of the kind of thing that technology is now allowing us to do. But also that the customer, if you want to call it that, and, and I don't like using the word customer in healthcare, but let's use that for the moment, the customer in healthcare is morphing. They are becoming much more enabled. They're becoming much more awake to what's going on around them. And I think there's now an acceptance that healthcare isn't just about doctors. It's about all of us. It's about our employers. It's about the people who at work is going to, are going to help us to, to be more healthy and be more mindful of uh, how we're treating ourselves. And I think there's uh, also a 
an awakening uh, amongst the population that we are heading into difficult water with our weight, our smoking, our sedentary lifestyles. And if we can do something about that, and many more of us are doing more about that, then we can avoid the catastrophe that awaits, which is, you know, one in two of us with cancer and dementia and heart disease and all the rest of it. Telehealth is said to advance at least a decade due to the pandemic because people are forced into that. And so something that was moving along just incrementally all of a sudden went boom. Is that good? Is that bad? Is it a mix? What, 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 what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, it, it's good. It's good in the sense that people who couldn't access uh, doctors are now able to access. And it's better to have some access than have no access at all. It's bad if we think it's going to replace the office visit. The face-to-face. The face-to-face, yeah. for all the reasons right. that I've explained. Okay. I think, you know, if you've got a chronic illness, a long-term illness, and you're going for a follow-up or a coaching session with somebody, it's fantastic to get a telehealth consult. But when you're in trouble, when you're bleeding from somewhere or you've got a lump somewhere or you've got symptoms that you're not sure about, you want to see somebody face-to-face. Yeah, good. All right, my friend, this is great. Just want to open up kind of wide open. Any final thoughts, anything that I haven't tapped into that you're saying, oh, Brad, you got to ask me about this. I got to say something about this. Any words of wisdom you'd like to leave the listeners with that I, that I haven't done a good job of drawing out yet? I don't think so. I think you've done a fantastic job, Brad. Uh, I, I, I would just say that how we communicate with one another is so important in the sense that we are used to facts being relayed to us all the time. And sometimes the better way to get information is from somebody who's walked the walk uh, and talks the talk. And to and that is a much more powerful way to reach deep inside ourselves if we want to make a change in our lives. Love it. Doc, thanks for joining us. This is great. Thank you so much. Thanks for tuning in to the number one podcast for health and wellness coaching. And thank you to Professor Jiwoo for providing his insights about the future of health in this week's episode. If you're looking for additional information about health and wellness coaching, feel free. Always reach out to us anytime you'd like. Results at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com. We'll set up a time to chat and you can access additional resources at CatalystCoachingInstitute.com anytime you'd like. Next week's episode is a hidden gem featuring an orthopedic surgeon who sounds nothing like an orthopedic surgeon. He often suggests things like skipping the MRI, waiting on surgery, reanalyzing your arthritis, and other guidance that is evidence-based, but definitely caught my attention and many others. It's one of our most popular episodes of all time, for a very good reason. Now it's time to be a catalyst on this journey of life. The chance to make a positive difference in the world while simultaneously improving our own lives. The essence of being a catalyst. This is Dr. Bradford Cooper of the Catalyst Coaching Institute. Make it a great rest of your week. And I'll speak with you soon on the next episode of the Catalyst Health, Wellness and Performance Coaching Podcast, or maybe over at youtube.com slash coaching channel.